Good as uh, I also said, I'm excited to be here. Um, I feel like uh, the kid at Christmas who's finally just been able to open up his present. I've been staring at the Christmas tree and the presents for so long, you know, and the, you're just drooling and just aching to rip open the gift and uh, tear off the wrapping. And this is uh, a little sense of that for me. Um, it's just been an amazing uh, trip, an amazing thing to see God take the life of this church and to cross its paths with the life of myself and my family um, and just being able to talk with various friends, there is just um, a great excitement in the air. Um, just trusting that God is going to do great and big things amongst us as individuals, then collectively as a community of a body of believers here in Delta Church, in this place, in this city, um, and in this state and abroad um, to the nation. So um, we're just very, very um, excited, me and the other elders, uh, just about what God is going to do over these next several months as God is leading us and guiding us as we're going to be coming together and fleshing out vision for what 2014 looks like and then five years out and ten years out and where are we going and what are we saying yes to and what are we saying no to and things like this. So um, just as you guys know these things, we just beg you that you'd be praying for us, um, that you would be bending your knee and beseeching God on our behalf so that we can hear from God truly as we go forward because we want to hear from God as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn our attention to Exodus chapter 33. And the main bulk of our text is going to come um, out of Exodus chapter 33, 12 through 23. That's what Charles read for us. Um, But what we're going to do this morning, as he said, we're going to step back. We're going to press pause on the God Is series. And for this Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to look at things stemming from Scripture, Exodus 33. And what we're going to do is look at things that we need to be remembered Um, to be reminded of, things that we need to be exhorted towards. Um, And as the main point of Exodus 33 will give us our first point of our desire to have God's presence with us as we go forward, then what we're going to do is step back again and just sort of look at a broad collective of things that have to be the foundation upon which we go forward in. Um, If these things are not part of who we are as a church, as Delta, going forward, it's basically going to be all for naught. And so what we're going to do is look at various ideas, various topics, various things that stem from Scripture that we must be reminded of and things that we must be exhorted toward. So what I want to do is just pray for us one more time, and then what we'll do is we'll get into um, the task at hand. God, I pray for my brothers and my sisters that as they are here listening, that they would be active listeners. God, I pray that you would make these words live that it would not be the mere speaking of man, but it would be the very Spirit of God Himself working through me and landing on the hearts and the ears of all who are hearing. And it wouldn't, we would not just merely be hearers of the Word, but we would also in turn go forth and do because what we're hearing is truth. God, help us to do these things for Your name's sake and for Your glory. Amen. Now, when you come to Exodus 33, um, one of the dangerous things about doing something like what we're going to be um, doing this morning is we are jumping right into the middle of this huge storyline that is taking place throughout the, the, the entire book of Exodus. And one of the dangers of doing something like this is just jumping in right into the middle is you can tend to rob the text, if you're not careful, of its literary context, the verses and the chapters that come and before and behind, And what we can do is oftentimes rob out of that text that you look at its meaning if you're not careful. So leading up to this text, what I want to do is do a a quick uh, run through, a brief summary of where we're at in Exodus 33. So that way we can have an idea of what makes this crisis that presents itself in Exodus 32 and the resolution that is presented for us in our key text this morning in Exodus 33, 12 through 23. So for those of us who've read the book of Exodus, um, this is a pretty familiar book, right? So Moses is born, Moses is called, he's called by God to deliver his people out of Egypt. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their family is now huge. They're down in Egypt. They are now the slaves of Pharaoh. God has heard the cries of his people, and God, out of all the people on the earth, has basically said, Moses, you are going to be my covenant mediator. You are going to be the one that I'm going to send down into Egypt, and as you go down into Egypt, I'm going to use you to bring my people up out of Egypt so that they can worship me. 
Moses goes. God uses him mightily. This is where you get the ten plagues. You have the Passover. The death angel comes over. The blood over the doorposts saves those who have the shed blood of the lamb protecting them. They leave. They go out of Egypt. They go to Sinai. And that's basically the gist of chapters 1 through 18. Then when you get to Exodus 19 through the end of the rest of the book, Exodus chapter 40, what you have is a little bit of a slowdown in the narrative. But you have these key chapters that present themselves and give us some key themes that really help land for us what exactly is going on in Exodus 33. So for instance, when you go over and you glance at Exodus chapter 19, you have this preparatory chapter that God is using and speaking to his people before God gives the Ten Commandments to his people. Where he talks to them and says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so the people heard this as God was speaking this to Moses. Then Moses relays this information to the people, and the people respond rightly in Exodus 19, verse 8. The people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So then God goes on, and in Exodus chapter 20, we get the Ten Commandments. And then in Exodus chapter 21, 22, and 23, we get what Moses eventually calls the Book of the Covenant. It's these laws, it's these case laws. It's these ways that the people of God are going to act differently from all the people around them that will identify them specifically as the people of God, that the Lord God is the God of the nation of Israel, and that this nation of Israel is holy. It's set apart. It's different from all the other nations um, that are surrounding the nation of Israel. And so then in chapter 24, you see this same phraseology pop back up that we just read in 19. And it becomes these bookends of the heartbeat of what the people are saying as they're interacting with with God and as Moses is seeing the face of God and as they're interacting and talking as a a friend talks to a friend. And you get the same language that comes back in Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told all the people the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And then even further in verse 7 it says, Then he took the book of the covenant, Moses did, And he read, basically, chapters 20 through 23 to the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So they even go a step further. So it's not necessarily just the idea of just because God is telling us to do something, we will just do some sort of remote external action. But I think the adding of that phrase, we will do all that the Lord has told us to do and we will be obedient, is them confessing with their mouths, yes, even from a heart of obedience, our desire is to have a heart that honors God. And in having a heart that desires to honor God, we will go forth and then do right actions. So then as you read through 24 and you come to the end of 24, you read verse 18, Moses entered the cloud. He went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, what can be somewhat confusing is when you start reading the next chapter, it's almost like there's a pause pushed on that narrative going forward. Chapters 25 through 31, Moses is giving to us the words that God gives to him on what it looks like for his covenant people to worship him. So God says, this is what the tabernacle should look like. This is what the altar should look like. This is what the priest should dress like. This is how the priest should act. This is what the basin is to look like. This is how you're to make make the lampstand and all these things. So God is being very specific. He's not leaving the covenantal worship of his people up to chance. It's not up to them to figure out. God in his goodness and God in his grace and mercy says, you are my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. And this is the right way that you are to worship me. So when you work through those chapters, the narrative actually stops in 24 and then picks back up in 32. And it becomes a very, very sharp contrast. So remember, back in 24, the last things that came out of the people's mouth is God has spoken. Everything that the Lord has said, we will do. And we will be obedient. Then when you pick up In chapter 32, verse 1, listen to what the people say. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So it's not but 40 days and 40 nights later, the people are already going, uh, Moses, tapping their watch, going, where's this guy been? And so what they do in verse 4 is this, and he received the gold from their hand, Aaron. So the people want a God. Aaron says, I have an idea. All the gold that was given to you from the Egyptians as you left Egypt, give it to me. So Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And even further in verse 8, God, in talking to Moses, says, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, and brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And what's amazing about this is they're misapplying redemption because what was the words out of God's mouth back in Exodus chapter 20? It is this, as he's about to give the Ten Commandments, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Forty days later, the people are saying no to what they said they would be obedient to do. And 40 days later, what are they doing now? They're no longer agreeing with God that God was their redeemer, but now they are collectively as a voice saying, it's this golden calf who is our redeemer, and they're breaking the very first commandment. I mean, they haven't even gotten, they weren't even able to get to commandment number two. They're busting it up on commandment number one. Their hearts have so quickly turned from the Lord their God to a golden calf that was made out of metals that were given to them by the Egyptians. So then you glance down to 32.19, and as soon as he came near to the camp, this is Moses, and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw down the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He shattered the tablets, because they had shattered the covenant. Moses took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses had them drink bitter water because sin is bitter. And when you pursue sin, sin reaps bitter consequences. So then you cast your gaze over to verse 24 of chapter 32. And you enter into Aaron's response to Moses challenging him. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what was become of him. Now this is a true report. When you go back and read the very beginning of Exodus 32, this is word for word. This is a verbatim of what the people said to Aaron. So Aaron is rightly reporting to Moses what the people said. But he goes off course in verse 24 when he says, So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I mean, it's like, just lo and behold, this thing just sort of came walking out of the fire in the form of a calf. What he's doing is he's trying to self-justify. He's following in the footsteps of Adam, because what did Adam do? When Adam was challenged in the garden by God, when Adam and Eve took of the fruit and ate and the fall of mankind came, God comes in the garden. Adam and Eve hide, and he says, why are you hiding? And he says, well, we know we are naked, and we are ashamed, and we are trying to hide from you. Because of the fall of mankind, because of the fall of Adam and Eve, that vertical relationship between God and man is now severed. And what you have is then Adam and Eve try to self-justify by lying following in the footpaths of the deceiver rather than in the footpath of the Lord their God. They tell a lie to God himself. Well, Adam says, well, God, it's your fault because you gave me this woman who deceived me. And then Eve says, well, it's the snake's fault because he's the one who came and deceived me. And you have Aaron here following in that same path. The deceiver comes. Aaron knows full well what happened. Moses even has a little point at the end of 35, puts this on here, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So Moses is like saying, there ain't nobody fooling anybody around here. There's no magic gold earring in, 
golden calf out just magically. So when you move down to uh, verse 34, what you have given is the height of the crisis. So they're not 40 days in beyond the covenant being ratified by the people in chapter 24. Well, they're saying, God, everything that you tell us to do, we will do it and we will be obedient. They fall, they fail, the covenant is now broken. And so what you have is God talking to Moses in 32, verse 34 says this. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. When you look at 33, verses 2 through 3, you get the same repetition from God. The Lord says to Moses, go up, depart from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. There is a definite and manifest consequence that comes from these people's rebellion against God. The consequence for rebellion is going to be the very absence of God's presence. But notice that the people are still going to receive a portion of the promise made to Abraham found in Genesis chapter 12, which was receiving a land. When you go back to Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, even though you are childless, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. As you cast your eyes gaze up to the sky and you see the stars, and they're too numerous to count, just as the stars are too numerous to count, so shall your offspring be. And I'm going to give you a land for this nation to go to. So when you're reading this here, God is talking to them saying, listen, go to this land, continue doing what I have called you out to do, but I am not going to be the one leading you up out of here. I'm actually going to send an angel and he's going to be the one leading you up out of here. The people are still going to receive a portion of the promise made to Abraham, yet they will receive the promise minus God's presence leading them and going with them. So the question I have for you and the question I have for me is this. If we found ourselves in this situation, would we be satisfied with that response from God? Would that be an okay thing for us? If God came and said, hey, the blessing is still coming to you. Part of it's already been met. They are a nation of 70 that went down to Egypt. They are now a nation of multiple hundreds of thousands being led out of there. So that being more numerous than the stars in the sky is partly there. And now God is saying, you're going to get the other half of the promise. You're going to this land that I'm going to give you. But it's going to be without my presence leading you, guiding you, abiding with you, making you distinct from all the nations of the world. Would you be satisfied with that? Would we be satisfied with this if this could be said of Delta Church? I mean, because we could do a lot of things here. We could sort of hit the ground running. We could have a lot of smoke and squealing tires. I mean, we could just press on the gas of Delta Church, and we could go shooting forward, and we could go out. We could start doing a lot of good things. We could start telling a lot of people good stuff about Delta Church, and we could, as daddies, maybe on our own start being better daddies, and we on our own could maybe start being better husbands, and maybe we would even see potentially some change in us and our children or our wives or whatnot. But if it is manifestly without the presence of God leading us and guiding us, I propose that that is the fool's errand. Because Moses gives us the precedent. Moses, the covenant mediator, is not satisfied with that. He is not satisfied with still receiving the blessing from God minus the presence of God. Why? Because the presence of God is more important and more lovely and more precious and more of a treasure than having just the blessing of God. Having the absolute presence of God dwelling in our midst, communing with us, leading us and guiding us is the treasure, not the blessing that may outflow from that. And Moses leads us and shows us that this is the true response. This is the right desire. God's presence is our desire. Moses, the covenant.
covenant mediator takes up the task of intercession, he realizes that receiving any promise or any blessing that God may give minus the very presence of God himself is not worth it. So Moses, on the beginning of our key text, when you go down and now in chapter 33 and you look at verses 12 and 13, Moses presses his special relationship that he has with God. He comes to God and says, listen, you've told me you know me by name. You said your favor is going to be with me. So if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Moses wants to know God's ways. Moses didn't say, you said I would be with you, so yeah, let's just get this blessing thing over with. God, angel, no big rip. At least what you've said to Abraham is taking place. He doesn't say that. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And then he continues to press on God, God's covenantal promise. He says, consider too that this nation is your people. This nation is your people. These are your people. These are the ones you have redeemed. These are the ones you have rescued. Don't forsake your promise, your covenantal goodness to these people. So he presses home on God, his special relationship that Moses has as the covenant mediator. He presses back on to God. God, this is your people. You have redeemed them. You said they would be your God. I am begging you. I am pleading. I am getting down on my knees, and I am coming to you, and I'm pressing back on to you in a mediatory, mediatorial sort of fashion, in an intercessing for the people, saying, God, we would rather have you leading us than having the blessing. And how does God respond? Verse 14, and he, the Lord God, said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If God's presence will not go with us as Delta, we just need to shut the doors. If God's presence isn't going to have a rule and a reign in our lives to the point where we go, not what I want, God, but what you want. If we are not going to live lives in submission to the Holy Spirit, getting up in the mornings and going, God, I ask that you would fill me with the very presence of God. God, fill me with your spirit. Just like an engine needs gas and we go to the tank and we fill it up, God, fill me up this morning. Lead me this morning. Guide me this morning. And if that means making me uncomfortable to be a winsome witness for Jesus Christ today, so be it. If that means we have to say no to some potentially good things for the time being as a church, God, so be it. Not what we want, God, but what you want. So that as people begin to look on the outside in, it's not, hey, look at all the good stuff that Delta is doing, but it's God is manifestly present with his people there. That is the winsome witness that people from the outside looking in going, you know what, I see the very love of Christ among these people because God's presence dwells with these people. I see lives that are being changed because God dwells with these people. I see daddies who are sacrificial in their love towards their wives and towards their children because he loves Jesus. I see wives who are submitting and respecting to their husbands not because it is some sort of domineering relationship, but because she loves Jesus. Those are going to be the types of relationships that go forth and will change the people that we bump into daily, not because we are pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and making this happen, but because Christ is in our midst. God's presence is our desire. God responds and says to the people, I will go with you. The very presence of God is going to go with his people And this is the proof that Moses has found favor. This is how God's people are marked out as distinct from all the people on the face of the earth. After God is talking to Moses, and Moses says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up for here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? And the implied answer is yes. That's exactly how it is. Without the presence of God going with the Israelites, they're just another nation with another God amongst many other nations that have many other gods. But the Lord God is the God of gods. He's the king of kings. He's the sovereign one. He's the one ruling and reigning over the days. 
And Moses knows this, and he grasps this, and he gets this, and he desires this more than receiving the covenantal blessing of merely land and a nation that's too numerous to count. We are distinct because the presence of God resides with us. And Moses leads us and shows us that example. So, when we look at Exodus 33, and we look at these verses in 12 through 23, the first main point, the first thing in this idea of remembrances and exhortations that we have to draw a conclusion on is this, that God's presence is what makes us distinct as a body of believers. God's presence is going to dwell with his people. The fact that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled their tabernacle proves that God truly does take this people to be his inheritance. So here's the beauty of the book of Exodus. So all the way up through this point in chapter 33, 32, 33, and 34, we're almost at the end of the book, and this idea that God is going to go forth and lead his people and lead them and guide them, and they're going to be marked out as a nation distinct, seems to be in question. The people keep breaking their promise, the covenant that they had ratified by saying, yes, we will be obedient, all of a sudden looks like it's hanging in the balance. The tablets are shattered because the covenant is shattered. So the question becomes, well, is, is God going to take them back as their people? Exodus 34 shows us that God is going to do that. 34, at the end of 9, Moses says, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And that becomes the big question. Is God going to take his people for his inheritance? And you jump all the way to the end of Exodus 40, 34 and 35, and the answer comes back as a resounding yes. How do you know that? Because then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That event became one of the main events in the history of the people to where they could look back and go, we know God dwells in our midst because once we had built the tabernacle and had done everything God had asked us to do in chapters 25 through 31, in 35 through 40, they actually go and build it and they do all this stuff. And so then they're just sort of standing there with a tabernacle in front of them, the priests arrayed, everything's in order, everything is made but yet God's presence wasn't dwelling with his people. And then you get to the end of chapter 40, and what happens? The glory of the Lord comes, and it fills the tabernacle. The pillar of the cloud comes and descends, and there is the very presence of God residing in the midst of his people, and that becomes one of the hallmarks, one of the, one of the milestones that the people of Israel could look back to and go, we know God is in our midst because the very presence of God is dwelling with his people in the tabernacle. Now, the good news for us is this. That event jumps forward and foreshadows the event of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Because what happens is this. No longer now do we just have the manifest presence of God, the glory of God, and the pillar of a cloud in some geographic location. But what you have now is the very presence of God dwelling in the very lives of his believers. So for those of us who are blood-bought, born-again believers in Christ, we stand here today with the very presence of God residing and dwelling within us. So as we come together and we gather together as a body of believers, what we have now is a coming together and a working out and a manifesting on an even better level of what was true back in Exodus chapter 40. God's presence is no longer geographically dependent, but now the very presence of God resides with his people So we want to, as a people, with me and the elders and the deacons and the community group leaders leading you guys to confess this is true and align ourselves with this truth. To confess that God, if you are not in our midst, leading and guiding our words, our thoughts, and our actions, everything that we're doing is just a complete waste of time. It really is. It'd be better for us to go join the YMCA and do something else on Sunday mornings rather than join here if the very presence of God is not working himself out in our lives. So now what I want to do is use that as a launch pad to go forward, and this will be um, somewhat quicker to um, maybe some of your guys' gladness. Um, What we're going to do is 
I want to just go through and touch on a couple of things to where as we go forward, these are just be good things for us to remember and to be exhorted toward. This is going to be somewhat of a handbag experience. It's going to be different from what we normally do in preaching the text and working ourselves through there, but it's just things that we have to be reminded of and to be exhorted toward. None of these things are going to be profound in a sense of, I've never heard this before. Like, you're not tweeting everything that I say here all of a sudden because it's like, you know, the latest and greatest thing. That's not going to happen. But it's things nonetheless where we just tend to slowly drift somehow from these things if we are not called back to remind ourselves and anchor ourselves in these truths. Thing one to remember is that our God is a sovereign God and he is meticulous in his sovereignty. From the dust speck floating around in here to the snowfall coming down in the Andes Mountains, God is in control of it all. And so when we step back and we think about how amazing it is that God has crossed our paths, I mean, think about this. God is the, the uncaused cause. He's always existed. He's always been. Before time had a beginning, God was there. God knew all things. So from the existence of time, God knew that in 2013 that our paths would cross. God is an omniscient God. God is an omnipresent God, as we've been talking about in the God Is series. So he knew out of the whole universe in all the galaxies that in the Milky Way galaxy, that of all the solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy, our solar system would have a planet Earth with people dwelling on planet Earth and in the country of the United States, in the state of Illinois, in the city of Springfield, in this building, that there would be a people at this exact moment in time who would need a pastor. And when I was just a twinkle in my mom and my dad's eye, back in Goldsboro, North Carolina, when my dad was stepping out of the Air Force, God knew that I would be born. God knew that I would be called. God knew that he was going to save me through the work and the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God knew he was going to call me to the pastorate. And God has woven in my life different places, different times, bumping into different people in different places and different ways to where our paths would cross exactly now at this moment. So our paths didn't cross earlier because if we crossed earlier, then this time wouldn't be right. If it was too late, then God wouldn't be sovereign because then it's sort of like, well, God, you missed your chance back here. But no, how do we know that the timing is right and this is what God has in place? Because I'm standing here and you guys are there. And I've been praying for you guys for several years now, even though I didn't know you. Trusting that, God, if you're the one who has called me, you don't call a worker to go to the field and plow and sow the seeds of the gospel without giving him a field to go and plow in. So this is the field. This is the place. This is the city. This is the community. And I've been praying for you guys, trusting that, God, if you have called me, there's got to be some congregation somewhere that needs a pastor. So, God, wherever they're at, prepare their hearts to receive me and prepare my heart to receive them. And God has seen fit to do that. And that should be blowing you away. I mean, that should be one of those things where you just rock back and you're like, you're a lazy boy, and you're just like, I, I can't comprehend that. And that should be a good thing, that we can't comprehend the ways of God. God leads us and guides us in the blessings of life and in the sufferings of life. And I'm excited by this, and my heart is stirred for this reason because God is good, and in His goodness, He has brought us here. And we can press in very hard into that and trust and know that God leads our ways, and that means He's leading this way now. And that's why we're wanting to submit ourselves to the very presence of God. Secondly, a thing that we have to remember, my name is John, not Jesus. My name is John, it's not Jesus. Back in the day when they made ships, the one of the ways that they would make ships is they'd anchor a ballast into the very belly of the ship. And it was this huge and heavy weight. So whenever any storm or gale or waves would come and smash into the side of that ship, the ballast, the anchor, the weight, and the belly of that ship 
would hold its sway so that as it would hit, it would rock but come back to center. And as it would hit, it would rock and come back to center. So what you don't do is put a pebble in the belly of a ship as a ballast because you could sneeze on it and it would blow over. What you do is you put an anchor, you put a rock, you put something that has some mass and some gravitas to it. It's got some weight behind it so that when no matter what comes against it, it will always come back to center. The ship that is Delta Church cannot have for its ballast me. Because I can guarantee you, I'm going to make a decision at some point in time that you guys are going to loathe. I'm going to do something that you guys will not like. We as elders will come together and go, we think God is leading us here. And it will be led by me and some idea that I have. And that thing will fall flat on its face. And we're all going to stand here with like uplifted hands and go, what in the world is that about? And if I am the anchor, if I am the ballast of the ship, then we are on a fool's errand. Jesus Christ has to be the anchor. He is the ballast of our ship. Thirdly, prayer must be our support. Praying for one another. Praying for me and praying for the elders. How often do you pray for your pastors? I mean, seriously, how often do you do this? We and the other guys are dealing with stuff that is unimaginable to you. That you probably don't have any clue about. And the enemy and the deceiver of our soul has the desire to sink us because as he sinks us, it sinks the church. Because that's the way God has set up the church to be. Are you praying for us? Are you praying for one another? I can guarantee you that there are some of us here today who are going through a storm. Literally, hell is breaking loose in their life. Are you praying for the other people around you? Are you praying that Satan has some really bad years in Springfield here coming up? I mean, that's a fun prayer to pray. Because there are two things that we can bank on. Christ is for his church. The gates of hell won't storm the, storm the church. And Christ is for his people. And as we press hard into that, that gives us hope and gives us fuel to bend our knees and say, God, I pray that Satan has some really really bad years over these next many years that we're here. Some things to be exhorted toward. And these are things that are not necessarily scriptural per se, but they do stem from large categories and ideas of scripture is this. We are going to set forth on this day forward running a visionary marathon, not a 50-yard dash. My goal in coming here isn't for me to step up and go, you know what, we need to do some really whiz-bang sweet stuff in the next three years because I need to bounce out of this place in three years because i got bigger and better things, baby, that I'm going off to. That's not my mindset. Most guys, like me, coming out of seminary, do have that mindset because the place where they go, they're not really satisfied with, and they just need to get some years of experience under their belt so that they can move on to something bigger and better that they like. But that is not my mindset. I believe God has called us here so that we can storm the gates of Springfield, that we can push back the darkness so that we can be winsome in our gospel witness so as we're bumping and running past people in our lives and we're just oozing Christ so that this city can be changed. And that leads me to that second point. I really believe that. Right? The book of Acts wasn't just something back then. Now, there were some things, like Pentecost isn't going to happen here in Springfield. That was a one-time shot back there in Acts chapter 2. But this idea of people who were invaded by the Spirit of Christ, who had been born again and made new by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, it has Jesus burst forth from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and their lives were completely changed around. Those people went forward and lived daily lives. And as you read the book of Acts, what is it? Cities were turned upside down. Lives were changed. People stopped worshiping idols and started worshiping the one true and living God. That can happen here. Why? Because God is a saving and redeeming God. And he didn't just do that in Ephesus in the book of Acts. Paul has given me one of the most one of the biggest promises in Acts 18 when he, God, called Paul to stay in the city because God said this, 
I have many people in this city that are mine, and by you basically staying here and teaching and preaching Jesus, these people who are mine, who I've called to be mine, are going to bump into the gospel, repent of their sins, place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation, and they are going to step into the fold of being children of God. That is something I believe can and will happen here when we press into God saying, God, you have to lead and guide our days. You have to lead and guide our ways. Secondly, then we'll move into a time of response. We are going to, because we believe this, we also are called to be practical in how we flesh that out. So we are going to have to say no to some good things on the front end. There is wisdom in acknowledging we are a people of limited resources, personnel-wise, as you just look around your friends around you, and we are a people of limited resources financially and whatnot. So our hope is that we will have to say no to some things now. We might stop some stuff that has been going on since um, Delta started. We might be starting some new things. We might be keeping some new things. We might be tweaking some old things. But as we go forward and as I am praying and asking God, where are you leading us? As we as the elders are giving ourselves to the preaching and the teaching, God, lead us, guide us, show us, where are you taking this church? I can guarantee you, inevitably, there are going to be things that we're going to have to go. We need to put a stop on this so with a laser focus we can hit this. Then as we start growing and God starts blessing and as we start making our way and invading the city with the gospel, then these good things that we had to say no to now in mile one, we can say yes to in mile five, mile ten, as we run this visionary marathon of, of, of invading our city with the gospel of Christ. And so we are asking you guys to step on board with us, with these other men, these band of brothers that, that are mine. We are a team, and we are a community, and we are coming together, bending our knee on your behalf, asking God, lead us and guide us and show us so that we can lead and guide and show you guys well. And we'll end out with this, and we'll go um, into a time of communion. The final thing to remember is that community, community, Christian community, has got to be the key as we go forward. Christian community is the key to our individual growth, to our personal sharpening, and Christian community is the key to one of the ways of seeing the kingdom expand amongst our neighborhoods, into our communities, and into our city. We are not to push away from each other but we are to press into each other. Delta Church is filled with sinners turned saints who are being sanctified. Gospel fruit is manifested most beautifully out of the manure of life. Right? So the tendency is this. Well, I'm just having a bad day today, so I don't think I'll just, you know, go to community group tonight. But like, that's the one night that you actually should be showing up at community group, right? man, there's just some hard stuff going on in my life, so I don't think I want to go there because then people will probably ask me what's going on in my life. Then I'll have to actually confess my sin, and that'll just be sort of, you know, weird, and I don't want to do that, so I just won't go tonight, and I'll just wait until I get some stuff straightened out in my life. But that's foolishness. That is opening yourself up to be swayed and to be ruined by the deceitfulness of sin. Romans 13.8 says this, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Love for others focuses more on others than on the self. It seeks to fulfill the needs of others even at one's own expense. And this is often where we get stuck much of the time. We say, well, I will love you this much, but if it's too hard and infringes too much on my world, my plans, my comfort, then that's where I draw the line. But what we're missing here is a right picture of why we exist and a right picture of love. Relationships with one another are not neat little, little add-ons to life, but they are fundamental to our existence. And Romans 13.8 expresses this idea by the word debt. We owe one another a debt of love. I think the writer of Hebrews picks this back up in Hebrews chapter 3, 12 to 13. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin listen like nobody wakes up fully in love with Jesus on Monday 
and then puts it in their planner. You know what? I think on Tuesday what I'll do is I'll just go hog wild and just dive off into wicked sin and just completely ruin my life on Tuesday. Probably 8 o'clock. That might be a good time to do that. Like, it's, it's not that obvious. Satan is too smart for that. Satan comes and it's just that slow drift, those slowly unchecked motives, issues of the heart, that glance of the eye, that cutting the corner at work, to where Satan is more pleased to slowly see you drift by the deceitfulness of sin. And how do you check that slow drift? By being in community. Where we as Christians come together and say, you know what, here's full access to my life, and I have full access to your life. And as we talk to one another, we can fight the battle of the good faith because you know me and I know you, and you can check and see when I am slowly being deceived and wandering off like a, like a, like a sheep to the slaughter. This debt is vital. We are inseparable from one another in our purpose. Why? We need one another as protection against the deceitfulness of sin. Certainly, we can and should help one another with physical and emotional needs, but that ministry takes place in the context of our spiritual good. I need you to be faithful when times are good. I need you to be faithful when times are hard. I need you to rebuke and exhort me. I need you to help me love my wife sacrificially. I need you to help me be present with my kids a lot and to do so without harshness or cause them to despair. I need you to consider your relationship with God as the most important thing you work on so that I too can consider my relationship with God as the most important thing I work on. I need you to do all things to the glory of Christ. This is your debt to my family and me. Please do not let me down. But listen, you are going to let me down. And I'm going to let you down. And we will do some of these things with the wrong motives, for pride or with begrudging hearts. Some of us will despair of ever attaining this level of community or Christian obedience. Some of us couldn't care less because we have bills to pay or school to pass or goals to accomplish. We all need his help. And I don't mean that we've worked as hard as we can and have gotten as far as we're able That's not how Jesus lived. Like Jesus, we must live every moment of every day aware that our Creator is near and is with us. Talk to Him in prayer. Listen to Him in His Word. Talk about Him with one another. Yes, even outside of church. Why? Because Jesus Christ is worth it. He's the beautiful one. He's the trustworthy one. He is right and He is merciful. He is the perfect friend. He is a mighty and gentle Father. He is a selfless and giving Savior. He is a powerful and sweet Spirit. And I want to know Him more. So as we press into community, will you help me to know Him more by you making Jesus the most important thing in your life? Will you help my wife and my children? Will you help us even when we frustrate you or intimidate you? Will you help us even if we pull away? Will you cry with us when we endure pain or tragedy and gently over time with wisdom and patience lead us in true belief about the scriptures as they teach us how to respond to these things? Will you really truly rejoice with us if by God's grace our children come to believe and confess the word of truth which we proclaim? Yes, I even need your help to praise and rejoice rightly. I need to see you believe it and proclaim it as we gather here in a large group and as we gather in community groups and the day-to-day individual lives. I need to see you cry tears of pain and say, my heart really, really hurts, but even in the midst of this, it is well with my soul, not because you're resigned to your situation, but because you are clinging to the same sovereign, good, holy, loving, omniscient God who rules and reigns with goodness intended towards his people who are rooted in Jesus Christ. We owe each other a debt of love. Will you enter into this mess with me? Because my hope and my goal is to enter into this mess with you. As we step forward and as we move forward, Our goal is to press into the very God who is the God of our salvation. And brothers and sisters, we can't pull this off if we even tried to.
It's got to be a movement of the Spirit of God in our lives that will see Jesus made famous in our city. So what I want to do is this. We're going to do something a little semi-different as we move toward our time of communion. What we're going to do is put into practice the very thing that we had just talked about. We are to make one of the foundational keys of our lives prayer. And so we're going to do that right now. And we're going to do it in a congregational aspect to where I'm going to ask the elders, they know this, to stand up and they're going to issue forth a prayer that in their areas of watch care, the areas that God has called them to as they are leading Delta Church, that God would reside, that God's presence would be there, that God's presence would lead them and guide them, give them words and actions to do. And then when they are done, I will close us out in prayer, then we'll move into a time of communion, and then we'll be done. So Charles, if you'll just start us off, and then we'll just work your way back to Brian back there, and then when I'm done, we'll pray. So great God, I pray that you would do a great and mighty work in our lives. I pray that you would make the words of Christ live in our lives. I pray that you would give us an insatiable desire to feast upon the scriptures, to be people of the scriptures, to find life in the scriptures, to find hope in the scriptures, to find rebuke of sin in the scriptures, to be exhorted to live holy lives in the scriptures. Why? Not because mere reading of words does this, but because the word Jesus Christ himself is rooted and written all over the scriptures. God, make us people of prayer. God, may the life and the breath of the day in, day out, mundane, may it be covered in prayer. God, would you fill this people, your people, with your spirit daily? Would we seek that? Would we desire that? Would we desire to be ambassadors toward the lost, seeking to preach, teach, show, live out Jesus amongst our neighbors, our co-workers, and our friends. God, give us the Spirit so that we may be bold in seeing that happen. God, if you do not dwell in our midst, we will not be a distinct people. But it is because you do dwell in our midst, we are a distinct people. God, for your name's sake, for your glory, for your fame in our lives and in this city and in this state and in this country and to the nations that don't know about Jesus, would you use us? We confess to you our need of you. Would you make these things true in our lives despite us? Do these things for your namesake and glory. In Jesus' name we pray.